I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the Government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June. We welcome the opportunity of a general election. This election can change the direction of our country. The Prime Minister's announcement today is one all about the narrow interests of our own party. You're joking. Not another one? Hello, I'm Laura Hood, politics editor at The Conversation, and this is our very first episode of a brand new podcast called Election Weekly. Each week, we'll be bringing you expert analysis on the 2017 general election campaign. We'll be with you right up until polling day on June the 8th, helping to cut through the noise and make the snap election as painless as possible. Today, we're going to be taking a broad look at the parties and the options on the table for voters. It's quite an early stage of the campaign, so there's not a huge amount of solid proposal on offer, but there's still lots to discuss. Joining me this week are Andy Price, Principal Lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University, and Matt Cole, a Teaching Fellow at the University of Birmingham. Thanks both for joining me. Uh, The one message that seems to be being rammed home again and again on this campaign so far is that it's a done deal. The Conservatives are guaranteed a victory. The only question is by how much they can increase their majority in the House of Commons. So I think my first question to both of you really has to be, is that true? Are the Conservatives definitely going to win this election? Andy? Yeah, I would say that, you know, all indications point that way at the moment, Laura. I mean, if we think about when Theresa May called the election, she would have been crazy to do otherwise to do anything other than than call a snap election, given what the polls were telling her. Mm. So on first reading, yeah, it seems like it's a done deal. And that's why most of the coverage says this. But we must remember one thing in politics and particularly in elections. And it goes back to that famous Macmillan quote. We've got to think what events might happen between now and then that could change the course of this election. And we've seen that this week, haven't we, with the leaked details about the dinner with Jean-Claude Juncker from, from the European Union. Events can run away with politicians very quickly. And of course, really important is the response to those events. And we've seen that rather extraordinary press conference this week from from Theresa May that accused the European Union of of interfering with, with the UK election. Now, the one perhaps development here that could really change things is Theresa May going to push the agenda of being strong and stable in in negotiations for the EU too far. That is, will eventually this strong position that we saw in her statement this week actually begin to put voters off. And that remains to be seen over the next few weeks, I think. Mm. And Matt? Yes, I, th- I think the tipping point for Theresa May is a very, very interesting concept. And I think it is potentially vital to her success. When you look at the history of elections that have started with huge government or opposition party leads, campaigns do make a difference. Uh, I mean, you think about Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, who would start with leads of 18 or 20 points, or sometimes even 27 or 28 in Blair's case. They would be cut back by five or 10 or sometimes 12 points during the campaign. So we shouldn't imagine that campaigns don't matter. On the other hand, we have to bear in mind that those leaders did end up with big majorities, even though their leads were cut. There will be a huge hill for the other parties to climb. I think the interesting thing here is that the opposition seem to have bought into a defeat to some extent already. The Liberal Democrats are openly saying, vote for us because you need somebody to oppose the coming May government. 
the SNP and Plaid Cymru are operating on the basis that they are trying to campaign for their country against their May government. And there are, of course, elements of the Labour Party who are anticipating with regret, but perhaps seeing a silver lining, the idea of a heavy Corbyn defeat after which they'll be able to challenge his leadership or get him voluntarily to resign. So the morale of the opposition is very, very low. On the other hand, there is this question of the Conservative campaign resting on the very small point of leadership and Europe. And if the campaign moves off that, or if that way of appealing to the public ceases to work and and the the balloon of strong leadership finally pops when it gets too big, then uh, it, it could be that the campaign turns unexpectedly. And you get a situation like 2010, where the Conservatives went into the campaign with a huge lead at the beginning of uh, 2010, January, but they managed to lose it by the time of the election. And it can happen. So this idea of uh, strong and stable leadership, we are hearing that phrase over and over and over again um, from Theresa May. Do I sense from the two of you that you think perhaps she's gone a little bit too far on this and it's perhaps becoming less stable and uh, in her attempts to make it seem more strong? Yeah, I think you're probably right, Laura. And this ties back to, to Matt's point about this tipping point. Is there a sense we're moving towards a tipping point and on how far Theresa May can push the opposition, can push the European Union in terms of negotiations and and, and ultimately push the electorate in terms of, of repeating this mantra of strong and stable leadership? And and that we might be getting somewhere near that. And as Matt says, we're in an, an election where the opposition seem to have bought into their own defeat uh, before we've even published the manifestos, you know, is it that th- those are extraordinary um, circumstances? But we've been in extraordinary circumstances like that before. Maybe not during elections, but in governments. We must always remember that, that one of the big danger to governments when they're in power is the feeling that they're unopposed. Mm. You know, we get the sense of overreach, and we see it with Margaret Thatcher in the late 1980s and the poll tax. We saw it with Tony Blair and the disaster of the invasion of Iraq. Are we in a similar situation during this election where Theresa May almost sees herself as unopposed and unopposable? If we are, we could get to the stage where she pushes all of those groups, the electorate, the opposition, and maybe even some of her own politicians too far to the point where there is some kickback uh, over the next few weeks. I I think that could happen, but I think it's much more likely to happen the other side of a general election. Theresa May is selling herself on this no-nonsense platform of being a a straightforward, decisive, resolute figure, very much in the the mould of Margaret Thatcher. In a sense, the the way she's using the European issue is the way the Conservatives used to use the economy in the 1980s and 1990s. Why did John Major win in the 1990s? Not because of his image of decisive leadership, but because when there were economic problems, as there were in 1992, the Conservatives could say, look, if the economy is going well, it's because there's a Conservative government. If the economy is going badly, it requires a Conservative government to tackle those problems. And in a sense, the EU issue and the issue of leadership is playing rather like that. It's got added to it the question of the referendum, which Theresa May is now owning as a mandate and saying, if you challenge this, you're challenging not me, but the public as well. And that makes it particularly difficult for the public to turn around and say, yes, we've liked Theresa May, we've bought into this idea of leadership, which a large number of people at least superficially have, for them to turn around in a short, unexpected campaign like this and say, 
actually, you know what, we were wrong about that. Theresa May isn't the right person and she is going too far. I think that kind of transformation in public opinion, none of us likes admitting we're wrong, uh, is, is quite difficult. And I suspect that that challenge will come, but it's more likely, as it did with Margaret Thatcher, to come from within the Conservative Party once she gets into office. And of course, the smaller her majority and the more fractious her party, the sooner that will happen. That's interesting. So the idea that there's just not enough time for us to sort of all really consider changing our minds on on the current situation. Um, I want to go back to what you were saying about the opposition parties, the morale being very low. There's a lot of talk about the possibility of tactical voting, of producing uh, electoral pacts, of coming up with some kind of progressive alliance to take on the Conservatives. Do I take it that you don't really see that as a, as a viable possibility? I think that that's at the moment extremely unlikely and largely because of the leadership of the opposition parties. They are at a far more distant uh, position from each other than they were, for example, in 1997. Now, we don't get open pacts amongst parties very often at general elections in Britain at election time. We do sometimes get coalitions afterwards, and what we do get, and we had in 1997, was a, uh, was a, a tacit pact in which the Liberal Democrat leadership and the Labour Party leadership knew where their strengths lay. They had dozens and dozens, in the Labour Party's case, hundreds of target seats, and only two of those target seats were ones in which they were competing with each other. They kept out of each other's way, and they very effectively marginalised Conservative candidates on that basis. No such cooperation is going on between the leaderships of the parties at the moment, and very little is effectively going on on the ground, partly because those opposition parties are themselves in a pretty weak state on the ground. Uh, they're either reduced in size, or they've grown very suddenly, very recently, or they're divided, and therefore, and in the case of the Liberal Democrats, have lost a lot of their local government base, they're finding it hard to be able to organise their own campaigns, never mind mm -hmm. coordinate with other parties that they don't officially acknowledge. Mm -hmm. But we've also seen, though, that uh, a lot of people are sort of doing it themselves. There are websites springing up all over the place that look into how, how you might vote in a constituency if you, if you want to uh, make a difference. Andy, if, if uh, there's no prospect of actually winning as part of a progressive alliance, is there any point in doing that kind of thing anyway? What, what's the sort of possible outcome that you might be able to get if you you uh, wanted to vote tactically, but you also understood that you couldn't necessarily defeat the Conservatives in terms of forming a progressive alliance as, as a government. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Laura, and I think it's an excellent point from Matt. You know that, that it's, we're probably further away from a, from the reality of a progressive alliance than we've been for for a while. But the you know the other point of, of trying to do something and the, and why I you know I would sort of welcome the groups that are, that are trying to do these things is that it's not just about winning this election, I think, the Progressive Alliance. I think, it, although we're far away from electoral pacts, we need them now, it seems, more than ever, because we know that the electorate has told us over the last few years that they're disappointed with the status quo. They're disappointed with left and right. And, you know, it's not just in the UK. We see this in France. We see this in the US. It feels like there needs to be some uh, realignment. So any attempt at an electoral pact, be it from the main parties, which, which I agree with Matt on this front, it's highly unlikely. It's also highly unlikely because of the tribalism of British politics. I mean, the, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats have been fighting each other at the local and national level for decades. So, you know, it's very difficult to overcome. But whether it comes from the political parties or from other groups, I think one of the positives would be 
not for this election, but maybe for future elections or future political groupings. Because whether we address it in 2017 or we address it further down the down the road, we do need to look at the old left, right, Labour, Tory duopoly and groups and parties do need to look at perhaps different ways of doing politics and appealing to the wider electorate. Yes, I think that that's very much the interpretation I would put on these sorts of explicit tactical voting campaigns. These sorts of things were run, for example, in the 1990s when people were starting to talk about Labour and the Liberal Democrats working more closely together before the Liberal Democrat leadership became willing to do that in 1994 and the Labour leadership in 1995 began to start looking at it. But that message will, in the end, get through to figures in political parties who might be the next generation of leaders and might be prepared to work more closely together. So this is not something that's likely to have a big impact, but it might have some sort of impact on events in the future. And in a sense, what causes tactical voting at an election rather than before it is the nature of the campaigning of the parties. If the parties in, in the opposition insist on campaigning against each other in seats where they do not currently hold the seat or they hold it only by a small margin, then they are likely to deprive each other of seats that they already have or could win. Um, we have to perhaps very quickly just deal with quite high-profile meltdown by a quite high-profile member of the Labour Party this week, Diane Abbott, who very badly fluffed her numbers on a radio interview about hiring more police. Does this tell us anything about the state of the Labour Party at the moment, or was it just a sort of bit of a false start? Well, I think I think it, it might be a little bit of both, actually. To be fair to Diane Abbott and to be fair to any politicians in that position... You know, it was her fifth or fourth interview of the morning mm. of the day. It was it was it's a difficult media spotlight and everybody can make a mistake like that. However, it's against the backdrop of a fairly haphazard Labour media management campaign, isn't it? And this ties into the wider problems we've got here. If we tie it to Theresa May and her repeated mantra of strong and stable leadership, that ties into something that's developed in British politics over the last few decades, and that is that the message is everything. You know, we can trace this back most clearly to Alistair Campbell and his control over communications and the message uh, in the first Labour administration. And it's there again in Theresa May. And it seems that the Labour Party are struggling to, to grasp that. Now, there's two problems here. The first is that even if parties get to grips with it, like the Tory party presently is doing, I think people see through it. People, people see that it's just message. They see there's no substance. If, on the other hand, you want to try and do something different with that kind of message-dominated politics, and that's to be fair to them, Jeremy Corbyn and his team have been clear about that since he took the leadership, that they want to do things differently. But the moment you try to do things differently, it can very quickly run away with you. You know, unless you respond to the media is central mantra that the media itself has put on politics, uh, you, you will struggle. And slip-ups like Diana Abbott's this week does have a huge effect. It plays out there with the public. So I think politicians find themselves in this bind. Mm. I, I wouldn't uh, disagree that they, the, clearly the role of the broadcast media and the social media now is much greater than it would have been in previous elections. However, I, I would try and uh, give Diana but some reason for, for consolation because I actually think... An event like this, particularly early on in a campaign, particularly from someone like Diane Abbott, who, who is a sort of Boris Johnson of the Labour Party and is expected <laughs> to, to, to uh, make unusual statements, uh, is not going to be that significant. I, I would think of it as rather like the, uh, the Bigotgate scandal in the uh, 2010 election. 
it was widely expected that Gordon Brown's attack on Gillian Duffy would uh, lose the Labour Party a lot of support. In fact, the Labour Party's poll rating didn't suffer dramatically, and the uh, the, the seat in which he uh, he had this encounter, Rochdale, was uh, held very clearly by the Labour Party against a Liberal Democrat challenge. So I, I actually think these things are largely isolated incidents. The importance of it, however, will be for the internal politics of the Labour Party. The anti-Corbyn elements of the Labour Party, 80% of the parliamentary party as it stands, is going to be looking at this and saying, Diane Abbott, someone very closely associated with Jeremy Corbyn. Now, people in the Labour Party who are committed to message politics are going to say, that's not how you win elections. And if this is what a Corbyn leadership does, this is why we have to get rid of a Corbyn leadership. So the voters may well forget about it, but Labour insiders might not. Uh, yeah, if I can come back on that as, as well, Laura, it's a very important, it's absolutely crucial, isn't it, that the idea of the sort of incompetence at the top around message man management sows disunity in the party itself and in the main party of opposition. And that's one of the big problems that, that we've had with Corbyn since he, he, he took over the leadership. However, that disunity in the party, we must remember, also plays out with the public at large. So as, as Matt rightly said, the poll numbers didn't suffer dramatically when Gordon Brown was making one gaffe here and one gaffe there during his time. However, it means that they don't increase their poll numbers. They don't garner any swing voters. They don't actually play as a competent organisation with people who might have been thinking about voting either way. So, I mean, it does have effect out there in, at large as well in the, in the electorate. Um, great. Let me just ask you before we go, is there anything particularly different about this election that we're seeing at this early stage compared to other votes we've had in the past? Matt? The thing that struck me most clearly is the stridency of the tone of the government in initiating this election, not just Theresa May's calling of the election unexpectedly, but the tone of her press supporters about crushing the saboteurs in the mail, about blue murder in the sun, and Theresa May's pursuit of the Liberal Democrats as a, a, the kind of party she doesn't want to see prosper. There's almost a feeling that she doesn't just want to beat the opposition, she actually wants to eliminate it. Now, I'm not sure if that's the impression the Prime Minister wants to give, but it's a different tone from previous elections. Yes, very strident in her tone at times. Andy, what about you? Does this election feel quite different to others? I, th I think it's extraordinary and, and actually unparalleled. And I'd agree with Matt that the, a large indication of that is the language. And really that language and the language of the press, it comes from a much wider international, if not global, movement. It appears in the last week or so that Theresa May has taken the rule book of Donald Trump and applied it to the British election. You know, you say the most strident thing you can to make sure the message gets across. And we know that the Brexit press, the Daily Mail and others have been doing that for a while, but for a prime minister to do it, I think is unparalleled. Indeed, well, I think that's probably everything we can uh, squeeze in for today. Thank you both so much for joining me for this first episode of Election Weekly. Andy Price from Sheffield Hallam and Matt Cole from Birmingham. Thanks very much. Thanks, Laura. Both Andy and Matt have written analysis pieces this week. Matt's been looking at the role the Liberal Democrats have been playing in this campaign and Andy has been making an impassioned plea for a progressive alliance. Both are available on theconversation.com. Join me next week and every week before polling day for a rundown of what really matters. This episode of Election Weekly was produced by Annabelle Blythe. The music is Chasing It by Jason Shaw. To hear more podcasts from The Conversation, check out The Ant Hill. Our latest episode is all about memory and forgetting. Finally, a big thanks to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. That's all from me, Laura Hood. Have a great week and don't forget to register to vote. Goodbye. Goodbye.